You're listening to Pastor Jared Ruddy of City Lights Church. If you have your Bibles, open with me to the book of Matthew chapter 5. Uh, we'll, we'll have it on the screen up there, but in the seat back in front of you, if you don't have a Bible, that's our gift for you. Um, please feel free to take that with you, and um, we would love also to help you begin to understand the Scripture. Um, religious people are either the, the nicest people you meet in the world or the craziest people. Um, I say this uh, often, but you don't meet too many people that work at IBM that start cults. Uh, typically, the people that start cults or crazy things are religious fanatics. Um, in other words, uh, so, uh, too much of a good thing or something that's good out of balance doesn't necessarily mean that it will continue to be good. Uh, religion is something that has to find its distinct place and its proper balance. Um, I'm not a cook. I can't cook at all, like at all at all. I've even um, stepped down lower now that I'm married, which I'm thankfully uh, been able to just relinquish that ability that I never had. When I was at school, though, um, my mom makes a killer apple pie, killer apple pie. And I said, you know, I called her up, Mom, I'm going to a party, and I, I, w- I want to know, like, would you be able to um, send me your uh, recipe for your apple pie? So she laughed really hard over the phone because I can't cook, and I Apparently, baking's harder than cooking, as many of you know. So she said, but you can make a peanut butter pie. So she gave me the recipe on my iPhone, and I went down to the store, and I'm like, oh, okay, this is easy. You know, so I get the peanut butter, the confectionery sugar. I think there's condensed milk in it and some other ingredients. So I get back to uh, my house, and I start making this peanut butter pie, and I'm thinking, wow, this is really going to be great. So I put the, you know, like a can of peanut butter whatever it is, a thing of peanut butter. And then I start taking the confectionery sugar, uh, the 10X sugar, and I start going one cup, two cups, three cups, four cups, five cups. And I call my mom. I said, Mom, this is incredibly hard to stir. She said, well, what did you put in it? I said, well, I put the peanut butter in. I put the 10 cups of sugar in. And she said, Jared, it's called 10X sugar, not 10 times one cup. And uh, so needless to say, after forming this into a strange fudge-like consistency. It separated into the refrigerator, began to melt away, and was like the consistency of gum and fudge at the same time. So I'm not quite sure. It tasted good because it had 10 cups of confectionery sugar. But needless to say, when you bake something or in a recipe, there has to be a a unique balance for something. Uh, There has to be a unique balance. And when we approach um, religion or when we approach Christianity, especially in a text like we're about to discuss today, it's it's a we have to understand where this fits into the grand scheme of things. If we don't, we're going to walk out very confused or other people can look at Christians and say, this is why Christians are a problem to the world. And I want to suggest to you this morning that when you hear these words, don't put them under the categories or the umbrellas that you may already be holding, but let's let the scripture redefine or define what this means for us. Let's read together Matthew chapter 5. Uh, verse 11, and Jesus says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Uh, I want you to take note that Jesus says, my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophet before you. Now, the reason I said it's important to make note that it's Jesus said, on my account, there's a lot of people that tag Jesus' names on things that he has nothing to do with. Uh, I'll, I'll make an example very quickly that all, all of us should know, the Westboro Baptist Church, that, that they're not Christian. Um, I'm thankful that some people are starting to recategorize them as cult. That's not godly. And the persecution that they face because of their um, obnoxious 
whatever is not, they don't, they're not storing up rewards in heaven. Uh, if you go out and try to, um, I don't know, boycott, a while ago Christians tried to boycott Disney, which lasted all of about two days. Um, and I thought it was kind of funny. People are trying to boycott Disney, and it's like, I don't think you're going to be able to do this one. Um, so they're trying to boycott Disney. They're not gaining rewards in heaven, and they often, because of the stupidity um, or, or whatever of Christians, oh, the reaction that we get from culture is one of obstinance. And because of that, unfortunately, Christians view, this is really weird, they view their stupidity and their re- the response their obnoxiousness as a confirmation or affirmation because they feel that they're being persecuted, that God somehow blesses their stupidity. And somebody says, amen. All right. So the goal of Christianity, when Jesus says, blessed are you when you're persecuted, he's not necessarily saying, go out and try to offend somebody through your stupidity, and in doing so, wait for their reaction, and then hit them back and say, well, thank you for persecuting me. It's a win-win situation. Now I'm getting something in heaven because you're stupid, and I'm stupid, and we're all stupid together. No, this is what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, blessed are those who are persecuted on my account. Now, we've talked about this over the last eight weeks. The scripture is written to us as a description of a heart redeemed by grace, not a prescription of something that someone will do to then be in favor with God. So what I mean by that is this. Over the past uh, several weeks, we've talked about the other Beatitudes, which you can look at in your Bibles this morning. But Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those that are mourned. Blessed are those that are pure in heart. Blessed are those, as Jesse spoke last week, the peacemakers, for they'll be sons of God. Now, Jesus doesn't give this to us as a spiritual stepladder. Um, I remember having a stepladder at home, and you kind of, I'm talking about a little one. You, you know what I'm talking about? You pull out of the closet, and you only use it when you can't get something. Christianity is not a spiritual stepladder. The goal of this is not to live our lives, and when we're in need of something, grab that out as almost something that's uh, a prescription to a problem and say, okay, great, now I can reach this. Jesus is saying that if you look inside the heart of somebody that's been redeemed by grace, they've understood that the gospel, what Christ has accomplished, and if I can peel back the layers of a heart, this is what grace looks like. This is what grace looks like fleshed out. Um, Maybe you've seen the show Big Brother. I've never actually watched it. I just know that they film people. I, I still can't figure out what the goal of that show is. I think they just watch. Is there no goal? All right, it makes me feel better. Uh, but whatever this is, there's a show on TV. There was also one that was um, called Glass House, I think, on ABC or NBC or something like that a while ago. Maybe you saw something like that. And it was this idea that there were cameras peeking in, watching people live their lives. And it's, 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 Jesus is saying this isn't a reality TV show, but if you could look inside the home or the heart of the redeemed, this is what takes place. So Jesus in this text introduces, and believe me, I'm watching the candle, don't worry. We are, we, he introduces something to us, though, that's really uh, controversial for multiple reasons. He starts off by saying, blessed are those that are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Now, righteous, what is righteousness? And we could say, well, it's right. Well, okay, that's a circular definition. That doesn't really help us. Blessed are those that are persecuted for righteousness' sake. In our culture today, the idea of righteousness just does not sit well. Um, We like the idea of large categories of gray. Things that are, if it's good for you, 
Um, it, it, as long as it's good for you, it's good for me. Everybody's good with their own personal thing, which sounds nice. Uh, works in stew, but doesn't work in baking when everybody gets to throw in their proper thing because boundaries are not necessarily constrictive or restrictive. But the idea of having this, well, as long as it's good for you, it's right for you, it's right for you, it's right for you. And C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, attacks this idea. Actually, it doesn't really attack. He more suggests this idea that righteousness is concrete. It's not something that we determine in a moment. And the analogy that he uses in chapter one of his book is this idea of quarreling. Have you ever quarreled with somebody? I didn't, quarreling? We know what quarreling is? I'm just going to continue to say the word quarreling. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't say quarrying, like, or, or like you're, you're at a quarry, quarrying, I guess that would be another word. Not like you're going out mining, digging rocks together. If you've done that, I'd love to hear about your experience. But quarreling, when you argue over something, and, and what C.S. Lewis says, it's interesting. Let me read this quote. Please uh, pay attention, though. He says this. It's funny when you hear or overhear conversations and people say things like this. How'd you like it if anyone did the same to you? That's my seat. I was there first. Leave him alone. He isn't doing any harm. Why should you shove in first? Give me a bit of your orange. I gave you a bite of mine. Come on, you promised. People say things like this every day. Educated people as well as uneducated people. And in children as well as... He goes on to say this. Now, what interests me about all these remarks is that the man who makes them is not merely saying that the other man's behavior does not happen to please him. He's appealing to some kind of standard of behavior which expects the other man to know about. And on the other man, very seldom replies, to hell with your standard. Nearly always he tries to make out that what he has been doing does not really go against the standard or what it does in some, he has a special excuse. He pretends that there's some special reason in this particular case why the person who took the seat first should not keep it or that they were quite different when he gave uh, the bit of the orange, or that the same thing is turned up, keeping his promise. In other words, this idea, maybe you've gotten into that, uh, a, a quarrel. If you ever watch animals, animals don't quarrel, they just eat one another. <laughs> they do. And what's interesting is that as humans, we have this strange, this strange thing, this self-justification. Isn't it funny that we quarrel over things? And we don't just look at someone, well, you know, you're on my nerves, I'm going to eat you physically right now. Like, now I'm not just going to kill you. I'm going to eat you. Uh, and then doing that, that's going to be your end. See, animals don't have the ability to quarrel. They just look at something and they say, no, let's duke it out. We're done. But as humans, it's funny because we have this unsettled um, rules of a game. And at the end of his quote, he goes on to say this. And he says, and there would be no sense in trying to do uh, or to agree on right and wrong unless there was some sort of external agreement upon rules. And, of course, being from England, he says, in saying that a footballer has committed a foul unless there was some agreement about the rules of football. He starts to say, why would you, you know, you, people quarrel. If you put two kids uh, downstairs right now in the kids' ministry, uh, as we have church while they're down there, if you put one ball in a room with two kids, what happens? No one's like, let's share first. Or how about you just play on your own? Then they don't go, how about I kick it to you and you kick it back and we can play together. How many people know that it goes, no, <laughs> right? It's not you can have, let's share, it's this is mine and I'll tell you why. Why? Because I was here first. Well, no, you weren't. Well, I like it more than you. 
or whatever other series of excuses. And the funny thing is, culturally, uh, we do the same thing. Regardless of if we're children, we quarrel. And if you're married, you know you do that. And if you're dating, I'm sure you do that. And if you don't think you do that, then you're quarreling with me right now. See, we, we all have this internal struggle, though, and it's as if we have this set boundaries. Now, C.S. Lewis in his uh, book, Mere Christianity, which I'd recommend is a, is a wonderful read, goes on to elaborate this far more. But in essence, Jesus is saying this. He's saying, blessed are those that are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Now, we don't like the idea of righteousness, but yet, um, as when tragedies take place, which um, I don't really want to comment because I'm not an expert on any means, we want to borrow from moral categories that our culture has already rejected. So when something bad happens or evil happens, we call it evil, but yet we don't have a true definition of what's right. We don't have a definition of this is right or this is wrong. It's a righteousness is as long as you don't hurt somebody. Well, that's really, that's a, I think if you actually look at that and and mine into the core of that, we hurt people far more than just physically um, by the products we purchase and far other things that I won't comment in this moment. So this idea is that Jesus says righteousness is concrete. Righteousness is something that's visible. It's a standard. It's something that's said. It's outside of us. And the laws of nature, we can feel it in us that's appealing to some sort of standard of righteousness. However, we don't know exactly what righteousness is. We just know that it's, there is a wrong and there is a right. We understand then that Jesus defines this righteousness as we understand it uh, through Matthew chapter 5 and shows us the way of the redeemed. Then he goes on to say this, that righteousness will draw persecution. As I opened up, I said this, that there's a lot of people that do things in the name of Jesus that have nothing to do with Jesus. And I just had a conversation with a guy at a party I was at the other night. And uh, he asked if I was, you know, what I did or whatever. And I was just kind of talking to him. I said, well, I'm a pastor. And he kind of looked at me like, oh, yikes. Like, I got to confess my sin or something. And I said, well, not exactly. And uh, I began to just dialogue with them a little bit and, and talk about it. And I said, you know, the hardest part about being a pastor, and I believe a Christian too, is helping people get over the struggles of what they've already experienced under the name of God and or Jesus. That's the hardest thing is being able to help people understand that what you've experienced may or may not be true Christianity. People, you know, when I say the word thunderstorms, people go, oh my gosh, I can't stand thunderstorms. Anybody love thunderstorms? I love thunderstorms. Anybody not like thunderstorms? All right. When I, when I was young, my dad would bring me out on the porch. I love thunderstorms. I've had great experiences. Now, I've also met a few people that have had not so great experience with thunderstorms and have also lost um, their sense of smell and taste. Actually, I know a church softball team that was playing out uh, on a field and lightning struck. And I'm sure when they hear the word thunderstorm, they're not going, ooh, I like this. This is great. Every time they bite into something, they go, oh, this tastes like cardboard. See, our experience can define those things. And as Christians, I feel like one of our struggles is helping people climb over the fact that what a Christian means. When you hear Christian, the first thing you think is uh, a rightwingwatch.org with somebody holding a sign talking about the end of the world. Which, let me just say, that was not, uh, that's not what the scripture teaches about the end of the world at all, which just took place the past few days. So I hate to have to even clarify that. But in case you were wondering, we we weren't surprised, okay? I went grocery shopping, or Aaron did the day before. It's like, oh, let's go get some groceries in case this thing doesn't end. No, that wasn't it. So Jesus says that righteousness is concrete, but then he says this idea of persecution. That if we're living righteous lives, we'll encounter persecution. That's interesting, though. What does he mean by that? We'll encounter persecution. Have you ever been persecuted for your faith? 
I want to suggest, as I said, that persecution isn't something that we offend somebody and our persecution is their response to our offensiveness. Rather, persecution comes naturally as that we live lives redeemed by grace in a society that doesn't understand. We live in a society that doesn't have moral categories of right and wrong. Persecution is not something that we seek. It's something that's inevitable. Paul the Apostle tells his son Timothy in verse, uh, chapter, two, verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 12 of 2 Timothy 2. He says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Isn't that a bummer of a scripture? I would take, if I could just cut that one out, I definitely would. All right, I feel that way. I guess the rest of you are fans of persecution. I'm personally not a big fan. I bruise easily. Uh, I take a while to heal. I'm not a big fan of I'm not a big fan of physical harm. Um, I'm a fighter. Don't don't test me. However, uh, if I could cut that scripture out, I absolutely would. Anyone who desires to live a godly life will face persecution. Well, how do we do that? Let me suggest it to you in this light, rather than I said our offensiveness provoking a response. John Piper comments on this passage, and he says this. If you cherish chastity, your life will be on attack on people who love free sex. If you embrace temperance with alcohol, your life will be a statement against those that abuse alcohol. If you pursue self-control, your life will indict excessive eating. If you live simply and happily, you will show the folly of, the folly of luxury. If you walk humbly with your God, you'll expose the evil of pride. If you are punctual and thorough in your dealings, you'll lay open the inferiority of laziness and negligence. If you speak with compassion, you'll throw callousness into sharp relief. If you're earnest, you'll make the flippant look flippant instead of clever. And if you're spiritually minded... You'll expose the worldly mild, the worldly mindliness, that is a tough one, of those around you. See, persecution isn't something we seek. It's not something that we go out with banners trying to somehow uh, gain credentials. In fact, a lot of churches take that posture, and I can't really understand. I, it's, it's like fighting fire with fire. It doesn't make sense. The idea of being persecuted is the fact that if we're truly living lives in response to what Christ has done for us, it will run, at times, counterculture to the day and age in which we live. Yeah, my older brother um, walked through a divorce a few years ago. Uh, it's about three years ago now. And uh, he's 29 years old. And he just uh, went to the doctor. And I'm sure we've all been to the doctor before. And they ask you, you know, are you sexually active? And uh, are you sexually active? My 29-year-old brother, who's not a dork either, I'm just telling you this, okay? He's not like, oh, yeah, he's a Christian dork. You know, no, he's like, my 29-year-old brother, he said, are you sexually active? He said, no. And the doctor literally could not believe it. He said, come on, dude, you don't have to lie to me. He said, no, no, he's like, actually, I'm, uh, I'm in ministry, and um, I'm following, you know, Christ and waiting uh, again until I'm with the right person. Now, that to, to the doctor was like, what on earth are you doing? Now, there was no persecution in that moment. There's no persecution. That was just the doctor going, all right, buddy, you're probably lying to me anyways, but if you want to, my brother's like, no, dude, it's me and you in a doctor's room. I'm not, I don't, really don't need to lie about that. If we 
when we live lives in response to this, and I want you to understand this, as we've talked about this before, Christianity is, is has to, you've heard the saying, you know, we can't keep the cart before the horse. Christianity is about what Christ has accomplished objectively. It's good news. The word gospel means good news. What Christ has done, it's historical. It's happened. He's, he's done it. Christianity is then the life that we live in response to the news of what's taken place. It's not something that we do in order to gain his approval. The gospel is because we've gained his approval, this is how we live in light of it. If we understand that gospel, if we've responded to that, there will come times in your life where you'll begin to run into conflict with the culture in which we live in. And Jesus says, at that moment, and I'm coming to a close because we're about to all light on fire uh, with that candle. He says this, Blessed are those that are persecuted for my name's sake. And then verse 12, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I'm going to rip through this real quick. Listen to this. Jesus says, rejoice and be glad. Um, I am not a fan of um, being tired. Uh, I'm a fan of the shortest distance between two points, um, exerting the amount of effort and energy to get something done, doing it right. Uh, Aaron just ran a marathon recently. I know Martin and Keely Martin's run what 20 plus marathons. Unbelievable. Um, I run from people and to the bathroom. Those are really the only two times I run in my life. And, uh, and all of the rest of us say, amen. You know, there's not, unless someone's chasing me, uh, and you know, it depends on who's chasing me too. I'll be like, ah, just catch me, you know? Um, but really, unless there's a a real, uh, unless I'm really being moved by the spirit in that moment, uh, then I'm not running. And it's, it's amazing, though, that when you look at people that run a marathon, they don't just endure the training, they enjoy it. Weird. And you guys are cut from a different cloth. I don't understand it. I share this often. and It's a, oh, I love the burn. I've never liked the burn. It's, you know, no pain, no gain. No pain, you feel great. You know, like, why do I want, why do I want to endure pain to get somewhere else? It's like no pain, no pain. That's a great workout motto. It's uh, it's, so you're hurting and now you feel better. I feel good without hurting. It's just, it's just to me, it's just a common sense thing. Sorry, no, I appreciate you know all of your um, physical endeavors, all of you that uh, are less enlightened. I'm kidding. Um, (laughs) I really am kidding. It is, it is good to exercise. But it's funny that when you see that people, they don't just endure pain; they enjoy it. How? We, when we were at the end of the Steamtown Marathon's finish line, you see these people that, um, you know, some of them just like, you know, I'm not sure what they're, what they're, whatever to do that. The others, um, though, some of them, though, they finish in incredible, like, the last, like, mile, you just see these faces. Aaron told me, you've got to be at the end of the finish line. I was like, all right, I'm going to be there. Well, I, you know, got down there, and uh, it was really funny. I thought I was going to be late, so I sprinted down to the finish line. And then she was like another 10 minutes. My legs hurt so bad the next day. I was so afraid I was going to miss her. So I get there and we've got a little sign. I had a bunch of you guys sign it. And uh, myself and Jim and Lisa are at the end of the finish line. And Aaron's running by going, Aaron, Aaron, yeah. She goes, runs right past us without seeing us. I was like, honey, what? It's funny though, because you see by the end of that 26.2 miles or one mile, whatever it is, 26.2, isn't it? You, by the end of that, you see the pain on people's faces. And it's just like, Everything's just like, oh my gosh, there were some people that just 
Ooh, it was a lot. By the time they cross that finish line, though, the pain goes into a smile. And then this stiff walk and a bunch of other stuff. And then they're walking around with large, like, Pop-Tart blankets, which is really a phenomena. Uh, and apparently they say that keeps you warm. Um, I think that's completely just psychotic. So, but when you, look at, when you look at fitness, it's amazing, though. People can endure it. I'll, 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 not just endure, but enjoy. I'll say the same thing with school. You, know, you see people um, that are in years of school, years of training. And they don't just endure it. They enjoy it. I'm talking about thoroughly enjoy years and years and years of study, which to somebody else, it would be absolutely, at best, would be enduring. Now, Jesus says, blessed are you when you're persecuted. He says, rejoice. How do we rejoice? This is, this is crazy. How do we rejoice when we're persecuted? Rejoice. I mean, really. I'm not talking about doing the church song, rejoice in the Lord always. Oh, my Lord. No. I mean, I'm talking about rejoicing. I'm a sports fan. You see, you see people that like sports. I'm sorry to use sports analogies. I know many of us, it doesn't, it's not applicable. You see people that love sports, how ridiculous they get. I fell asleep on Aaron's lap during a hockey game. I don't like hockey, the one sport I don't like. And I was just kind of laying like this, and it was the Buffalo Sabres in, like, game four or something like that. And she's like, yeah! Woke me up. I'm like, oh, my Lord. That's rejoicing. There's excitement. You see, you, at the end of a marathon, you see this. It's not just like, oh, yeah, I finished it. I can put a sticker on the back of my car. No, no it's rejoicing. What? Jesus says, we rejoice because we can see a day that's yet to come. This, this is it. We rejoice because we can see a day to come. Our culture is victims of the moment. If you watch American Idol, X Factor, any of those shows, it cracks me up because here's one singer that gets up, sounds awful, but because people like them in that moment, and then Simon Cowell, who which I'm a personal fan of just because of how blunt he is, he just looks and he goes, I'm not going to lie, that was, that was awful. That was really, I don't even know how you made the show right now. That was, that was horrendous. And everyone's like, boom! Next person gets up, and then Simon's like, that was phenomenal. Everyone's like, whoa! Next person, that wasn't too good. Boom! And it's like, we are so victims of the moment. Especially, I mean, even in holidays. And if you've done this, um, I would really rethink before you give that gift, figure out a different way to do it. But you see people that go to uh, Renaissance or something like that. And just to, to just show the spirit of our age, it's amazing. You, you can't afford an Xbox. The Xbox or whatever spends like 250 bucks. And instead of spending $250, saving your money, people will go on a payment plan for like 36 years and pull out a 30-year mortgage on it for an Xbox. Just wait. You, you could wait like six months for a payment, have it, never worry about it. I got to have it. Why? Because I need it now. It feels good, right? I need my Xbox. I'm not going to work, but I'm going to pull out a payment plan. And if I can get that payment plan, then over the next 36 months, I'm going to pay back that Xbox $35 a month. All right, cool. I guess. We're so victims of the moment. If We're victims of convenience because we have not been trained to see today so that our phones and iPads and iPad minis, which I'm not going to get because I already have an iPad and it's only smaller, but if you get one and you have another one, I don't understand that. But we, 
we are the most technologically advanced culture and we're constantly bored. You see your new shirt? You're scrolling Facebook like it's a full-time job. It's like, so what do you do at home? I work for Facebook. Oh, it's really, it's great. You work for Facebook. No, I work on Facebook. What do you do? Farmville and Chefville. Nice. Our culture, though, doesn't have an ability to see tomorrow. I won't belabor the point much longer because we don't have much longer to live if I do. The statistics on retirement are unbelievable, though. Our generation, um, and when I say our generation, I'm saying that this uh, post-baby boomer generation doesn't plan for retirement. I mean, you can just see that. People just, Social Security be there. It might. I don't know. I don't understand it. But we just don't even think about retirement. It's just like, eh. The statistics on retirement in our generation compared to the past generation are diametrically opposed. Because we just think, "Ah, well, you know, when I get there, I'll figure it out if you're strong enough to get wherever to figure it out. We don't think about tomorrow. Tomorrow has no bearing in today. Whatever makes me feel good in the moment. And Jesus just plays on this idea, though, and he goes, blessed are you when you're persecuted. When, In other words, you're living a life that comes into opposition. Not that you're seeking opposition, but as you live and model grace, you'll come to points we're at conflicts in culture where your boss asks you to lie or fudge numbers or cheat on the taxes, and you say, I can't do that. Why? Because I'm trying to honor my Lord. And they look at you and go, oh, we got to let you go. Why? Because in that moment, you're able to see beyond the temporal. You'll be able to see beyond right here, right now. It amazes me. I'll say this is the same example with women who get pregnant, which I'm thankful my mom did. I wouldn't be here if she wasn't. That's, isn't that deep? You, you, you see, women have uh, morning sickness, throwing up day after day after day, and then they have the baby. You're like, that was great. I can't wait to get pregnant again. You just threw up for nine months straight. If I throw up like twice, I'll never eat the food again. Nine months straight, and you're like, yeah, I'm ready for, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm probably going to have about four or five more, maybe six. You endure 24-hour labor sessions, passing a Mack truck, and then you're like, yeah, let's do it again. You're like, oh, she's so cute. I'm, I'm, I'm serious, though. Uh, you, you, think, you think think with me, though. It's amazing. What, why, can, why can a woman endure that and then do it again? And not only endure it, but enjoy it. Because she can see beyond today into tomorrow. She can see past the temporal pain and not just endure it, but rejoice in it because she knows why. Romans chapter 8 says this, I, I compare nothing that the present sufferings of our day are not worth comparing the immeasurable, surpassing glory to come. Why can I endure? Why do I live Uh, as a 24-year-old guy in the culture that I do, laying down my life, trying to work for the good of the city, trying to model grace, choosing to forgive people I don't want to forgive, choosing to stay faithful to my wife for beyond reasons of just keeping peace at home, but truly loving and cherishing her. Why do I give to the poor? Why do I do these things? Not so that I am righteous, but because I see the fact that Christ has redeemed me and I see that everything is worth it because I can see tomorrow today. I see tomorrow. I can look at it and I can go, you know what? Tomorrow is as real to me as is today. 
Um, when I was engaged, Aaron and I dated long distance the whole time. She lived in Buffalo. It was about four and a half hour drive from Scranton here. And we dated long distance the whole time. We got married in person, but it was long distance and everything else other than that. And in doing so, when, when we got engaged, it was amazing. Um, not, not necessarily the engagement was amazing. It was amazing. The, that was two, I guess. Sorry, honey. It was, it was amazing though. The days to follow that engagement. Now, men, let me let you in a little secret. All you have to do is show up for the wedding. The women have everything else already planned from the time they came out of the womb. I don't even know how that's possible. They do. It's amazing. You just show up and say, I do kiss the bride. And then, um, the rest is history. And all the women are like, really? No, we don't do that. We go along with smiles on our face the whole time. But when I was engaged, it was interesting because now I wasn't planning dresses and colors and everything. I don't care about that stuff at all. I can't barely stand to shop myself. But when I got engaged, it was as if tomorrow broke in today. It was like tomorrow was breaking into the present. Because when I was engaged, it wasn't just that I was waiting to see Aaron again. I was awaiting a day. There's a dramatic difference between waiting and awaiting. You wait for a doctor. You wait for it to wait for it to be done. You await a pregnancy. You await a marriage. You await the coming of a friend. You're awaiting something. It's not just waiting for time to pass. It's that time is already reorganizing and reprioritizing your life in the present. So before we were married, I began to look at the house and thought, man, I got to clean this place up. That couch is not going to work when I get married. And Erin gave me, not really a list, but she could just kind of walk through and I can read her face of going, that's not going to work. Eh, that's not happening. You got to have a railing there. We're going to fall down and die, which is a true story. I had a death ledge in my house pre-marriage. I'm sorry. It's a, it was hysterical. If you were ever in my house, I had this drop that went about 12 feet uh, down to the, the first floor and there was no railing there. So that was on the 41 number one that we didn't lose the new wife uh, coming home. So when I got engaged, though, it was different between when we were when we were just, just dating. She'd come over, you know, she'd visit for a couple days or whatever, vice versa. But we, we got engaged when I didn't get an engagement ring. It's okay. When she got one, though, everything changed. Because I had a guarantee of a coming day. I had a guarantee. No longer was it just like, oh, yeah, I can't wait to see. Oh, when's it going to happen? Now I knew February 19th was the day that I would be married to her. And because I knew that, now everything in my life began to reprioritize up into that day. Jesus says this, rejoice for your persecution. Why? Because great is your reward in heaven. I'm going to make two comments about that, and then I promise we are, we're done. Number one, Jesus tells us rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. That's not an escapist view. I want you to understand this. Jesus uses the word heaven. Um, We often, actually almost always, allow our culture to define the idea of heaven. And heaven to me is almost a joke when you see it on TV. The idea of us getting a couple wings. I don't want wings. Um, uh, We wear togas and sit on clouds and worship all day and play harps, which I, okay. That'd be kind of cool if I could. But it's, kind of, it's really kind of a silly picture when you think of heaven. Most people, though, they, they think, you know, if I could just get to heaven. This is an escapist question, though. When Jesus says, great is your reward in heaven, he's not talking about, well, someday when this, thing whole, this whole earth burns up and we're out past yonder, 
singing on streets of gold or whatever we're supposed to do now. I'm not saying that I don't believe in that. When Jesus says this, though, in the book of John, he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. If it wasn't so, I wouldn't have told you. The word place there is not permanent residence, but it's actually the idea of a hotel. It's a short stay. The scripture is not about us leaving this world and getting to heaven. The ultimate picture in Revelation chapter 21 is that God is redeeming this world. He's redeeming this physical earth. So when I understand that great is my reward in heaven, heaven's not where, when we talk about heaven, we think about it locationally too much, as if it's out past the clouds or something like that, out past Pluto or wherever. Just is your reward in heaven. He's talking about great is your reward in eternity with him. If I put two people in a room together and I said, okay, you're, you're both going to make um, widgets or something like that. I don't know what a widget is. And if that's you know, an offensive word, I apologize. I don't know what it is. Um, if you're sitting in a room making widgets, though, and I, I put, is that an offensive word? Okay, good. I just want to make sure because the last thing I want to do is be saying, you know, be cursing if I was in Australia or something like that. Never say fanny pack in Australia. Okay. Um, it's a true story. If I put two people in a room, though, and I said, you make, you make the same thing each day, and you're getting minimum wage, and the person beside you, I'm going to say, you know what? You make this widget, and at the end of this year, we're giving you a million dollars. Who do you think comes into work more joyful, the guy making minimum wage or the person that understands that at the end of the year, he's getting a million dollars? Think about it. How would, how would you come into work if you, you know what? A million dollars in our culture is... You know, it's a lot, but it's not a ton. It's more than I have. What, how, would you, how would you operate, though? How would you function? Would you walk into work every day and go, eh, I'm making a widget? How are you doing? I'm making a widget. Because if you could see tomorrow, it'll break into today. If you can see the eternal reward of what Christ is in the, the length in the, the depth and the breadth of what Christ has already accomplished and what's coming, his coming kingdom. Man, it's, it's so worth enduring, not just enduring, but enjoying the persecution that Christ's life will inevitably lead to. I want to encourage you this morning as we close. If you don't know Christ, um, as I said, a lot of us have mental umbrellas and categories or hooks that we hang things on. We hear Jesus and we get all these sharp reactions. And um, I'm not going to apologize for your experience because I think that would not really be able to even suffice if you've had negative experience. Um, I can just say this. I'm not sure who was cooking up for you the message of salvation or Christianity. But it doesn't necessarily mean that whatever they were serving you was from him. As we open up this morning, it said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for his name's sake. I ate a blueberry syrup when I was um, in fourth grade. I won't eat blueberry syrup anymore. I won't. I got really violently sick off it. I I love blueberry syrup. No thanks. Not a fan. Because I had a really negative reaction to it. Something really disgusting. And now, I don't know if there's anything intrinsically wrong with blueberry syrup. I hear it. I just won't touch it anymore. 
maybe you've experienced uh, a really discolored version of Christianity, terrible, where God is um, the fist and boots in the sky that's judging everybody. And uh, maybe you've researched tons of websites and have tried to figure out how you can insulate yourself from the message of uh, Christianity. And if you've done that, let me simply just say this. The message of grace is clearly portrayed in the person of Jesus Christ. Perfect. And I would hope uh, in the next few moments, I'm not, we're not going to ask any physical response from you, but that you would uh, reconsider, that you would be open to conversation, that you'd think through this message of grace, and uh, rather than just being offended or turned off for that sake. So.